You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Sarah Stedman, and this is The Living Writers Show. Um, today, you will hear first an interview that Molly and I did with Allie Carter, and then there will be a segment um, in which we give reviews of books that we've recently read. So if there are any books that you have recently read that you would like to speak to us about, then you can call the station at any time in the next hour. The phone number is 734-763-3500. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today's guest is Allie Carter, the author of I'd Tell You I Love You, But Then I'd Have to Kill You. How are you today, Allie? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks for being on the show. So we read um, in your book jacket that you live in a Midwestern town, and we were wondering where that town is and whether there was some secretive swanky boarding school for girls nearby. (laughs) No, I actually live in southeastern Kansas in a very small town down here. And no, I'm afraid there aren't any spy boarding schools around that I know about. But that's part of the the glory of the spy boarding school is you never really know where they are. (laughs) Um, And we were wondering what inspired you to write a book like this. I mean, there's a lot of media for kids that focuses around spies, but maybe not in such a detailed way, you know, right next to you, Harry Potter style. Well, thank you. Um, I I honestly have to say, I got the idea for this book about a year ago because I was home um, watching Alias on TV, and I had the show on mute because, you know, if you're technically working, it's okay to have the TV on if it's on mute. And so I had the TV on mute, and I look up, and it's a flashback to one of the when one of the girls was young, and she was living in an orphanage, and it just showed all these girls running around this big building in the middle of the night. And, of course, the sound was off, and so I didn't know what was going on. And the first thing that popped into my head was, did she go to a school for spies? And then I turned it up and, you know, come to find out that she just lived in an orphanage. But then that, of course, planted the seed of, oh, my gosh, what if there was such a thing as a school for spies and how great that would be. And so that's kind of how the story came to be. For those unfamiliar with the novel, um, Allie's book is about a 15-year-old girl who is in um, spy boarding school training to do covert operations and... Governmental spy work, and of course, all of the hilarity that ensues. And I mean, I guess going along with that, it sounds like you're inspired by sort of pop media. The book is pretty playful and believable when dealing with those subjects. I mean, as believable as spy boarding school can possibly be, but there are lots of issues such as covert surveillance that are very problematic um, to a lot of people in politics and in the media right now in the news media. Um, did you think about that more serious side of what these girls are being prepared for, what they're doing while you're writing, and do you think your readers do, or that it's just sort of a fun romp? Well, my my first instinct was to make it just a fun book. And, you know, the, the kind of the main crisis in the book is that this girl who goes to this very top-secret school has fallen for a normal boy who could never know the truth about her. And so that got me to thinking about, you know, back when I was in, in high school and whatnot about, you know, how kind of every girl with a crush is a spy. You know, they just don't have the training to back it up. You know, you're staking out his locker. You're finding out what he's saying about you behind your back. And, you know, these girls, you know, they can actually hack into his computer and tap his phone. So that's what they do <laughs> because they're spies, and they, this is what they've been trained for in a way. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm glad to hear you mention, you know, there is a lot of serious aspects of espionage in this day and age. 
And I kind of, I, I, I didn't want it to get too over the top. You know, I enjoyed the Spy Kids movies, and I've enjoyed some things like that. But, you know, those are, there's never really much level of realism in those. And one of the things I really wanted in this book was there to be, you know, at least kind of that undercurrent of what if this was real. And the girls, you know, they, they kind of get into these silly antics, and they, they have Gilmore Girls marathons, and they, you know, they all worship Orlando Bloom and all the things that ordinary girls do. But I think a lot of the reason that they do that is because they know deep down how serious the work they're eventually going to have to do is going to be. And so that's kind of a coping mechanism, if you will. You know, we're going to try to stay normal as long as possible. And and when we talk about surveillance and all the things that they do, I think, you know, they're, they're being trained to do it um, because it's just a necessary aspect of the intelligence life. And, um, you know, whenever I hear about the things that are going on today, about some of those things possibly being abused and whatnot, I, I try not to relate that too much to what the girls are doing because I think there's a, there's a difference between knowing how to do some of those types of things and then doing them inappropriately. And granted, maybe spying on the 15-year-old boy that you have a crush <laughs> on isn't the most appropriate use of those skills. But, but hey, if you're a 15-year-old girl with a crush, what else are you going to do? So I guess I've, I've been wondering for a while whether you prefer the movie Spy Kids or Agent Cody Banks in the, you know, Child which spy is it, which genre. Which of those two I prefer, or yes. do I like them in general? I, I guess which you preferred, or if you like them at all in general. Um, I like them both. I, I thought they were both a lot of fun. I, 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 I really enjoyed the first Spy Kids just because, you know, I love Antonio Banderas, and I thought he was very cute and, and very good in it. Um, Agent Cody Bakes, I thought, was, was just another really kind of cute cute take on it. Um, you know, I I don't necessarily know how much comparison those two movies would have with my book or, or the movie if it ever gets made of, of my book. Um, you know, because it is, mine's more focused on on less bringing down the bad guy. And that's one thing that as I've started working on the sequel and talking with my editor, you know, a lot of spy kids movies or, or, or spy books are, are in that genre in general, it's kind of about how do you bring down the bad guy of the week, you know, kind of the villain of the week mantra. And, um, you know, this book isn't really about that. There isn't really, it isn't, you know, we have to save the world by, you know, this, you know, taking out this, this evil villain. It's more, you know, how am I going to cope with, with my exceptional life? And it's really about a girl who, who has lived a very, in one way, she's a very worldly girl and that she's seen a lot of the world and she knows, you know, 14 different languages and how to kill, how to kill a man with a piece of uncooked spaghetti. You know, she knows all these things. Um, but on the other hand, she's lived a very sheltered, secluded life. And when she meets this ordinary boy who thinks she's an ordinary girl, she realizes just how little about herself and about life she really knows. And and that's so that's really more of the the gist of this book, I guess, if you will. It's less about bringing down the bad guy and more about you know a girl trying to figure out exactly what she wants out of life. I think a key difference is that in those films. Like it's the children being kind of like thrown into the adult role, whereas mm-hmm. your book juxtaposes like the seriousness of the adult lives with, you know, the potential for that life later on for the girls. And I think exactly, that's... the teachers want them to be prepared, uh, but on the other hand, they want them to to stay kind of as sheltered as long as possible. Why did you choose to make it an all girls school? I mean, obviously it 
forward to the plot, but just when you were thinking about putting the book together at the very first, was that something that came right at the beginning or along with the rest of the story? Probably my first instinct was to have it be co-ed. And then in talking with my agent, we decided that making it a girls' school would actually, you know, give us more potential for stories down the road. Mm -hmm. Also, a big thing is I got to thinking, once I started thinking about the founder of the school, Jillian Gallagher, Mm -hmm. who founded the school shortly after the Civil War. And when you think about life in in the late 1800s, if you were a woman in the 1800s and you wanted to get an education, you were probably going to have to be of a social class where you could afford some kind of private school, which, of course, the Gallagher Academy is a private school. But you weren't going to learn math and science and languages. You were going to learn, you know, leg crossing and husband getting. And I, I thought that it would just kind of be fitting for this exceptional woman to found a school where, where girls could get the kind of education they couldn't get anywhere else. And I think that, that that's pro- that's probably very key to the history of the school and the backstory of the school is that it was founded for women and for girls. Also, when you think about it, women have played a vital role in espionage throughout the years. You know, in the, the, the National Spy, International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., there's a wonderful kind of tribute to women in, in, in espionage because, let's face it, there are not a lot of men out there really, truly attribute women as being a real threat. And so they're able to gain access to places and to do things that men probably wouldn't have the opportunity to do. And so I love that aspect of the Gallagher girls, is that, you know, being a girl is actually part of their main secret weapon. Do you think that the actions in the school reflect just the way girls are or would be if they really just live their lives with no boys around or something more um, having to do with the seriousness of what they're being prepared for? Because there's a I lot think, of that. Yeah, I, book. I think I've never gone to an all-girls school, so I, that was something that that I really kind of struggled with a little bit. And then I just tried to ask myself, what would girls be like in this environment? And especially considering the fact that these aren't ordinary girls. You know, they're all of genius IQs. Most of them have parents who are spies, and so they're they're a little different kind of girl in in general. But on the but, but at their soul, they're trying just to be normal. You know, they love the WB, and they, you know, they, they listen to radios, and, and they they are are just all about makeup and all that kind of stuff to, to the extent that you can be without boys around it to be pressured for. And I think it's almost a little bit of a utopian environment for girls and in that respect because there there's a lot, there's not a lot of cattiness that goes on at the Gallagher Academy. And, and I really like that about the school, and I like that about those girls. And I think part of that is because there there aren't any boys around, and there is that there's not really that social pressure. Also, because it's a school that that puts a lot of emphasis um, on your intelligence and on your creativity and on your teamwork and and on things that aren't necessarily the shallow types of things that I think a lot of mainstream society girls find themselves being pressured to excel at. And another thing I really like about the school is the fact that, like you say, there's kind of that undercurrent of you never know down the road which one of my classmates, my life, may be in their hands. And and they keep that really in, in mind all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons the Gallagher girls are so close and so formidable. I guess my life has been in Sarah's hand, it's at least my social life, a few times. So there's definitely something <laughs> to be yeah. taken away. What kind of research did you do? You were mentioning some spy museums and stuff to sort of get yourself up to speed on international and national and hometown espionage. 
Um, I did do quite a bit. I hate to say quite a bit, but I have purchased some books. I've always, I'm always joking that I'm probably on all these CIA watch lists because I, <laughs> you know, I Google all these very strange phrases. <laughs> so I'm sure they're probably staking out my house right now. Um, and I, I go on Amazon and I order all these books about how to be a spy and, you know, cracking codes and, you know, you know, the best ways to spy on your neighbors types of things. And so it's, it's, I'm probably on some very interesting lists. I'm sure you're popular with the neighbors. I probably am. They're all probably all very concerned. My publishers at Hyperion, they, all the pu- people in the publicity department swear I'm actually a spy. And this is just like a, a cover within a cover within a cover. <laughs> And, we'll never know. <laughs> and it may be, you never know, I probably couldn't say so. But <laughs> yes, I did. I, I, I found some, some good books, and probably one of the best books is the, the International Spy Museum does just a very small, very basic um, handbook for, for espionage <laughs> that I actually ordered online. And it's, it's kind of written at, the, at a kid's kind of level, which, which is great, which is about the level I need to be reading at anyway. <laughs> And, and it covers it, and, and it includes a lot of the, the vocabulary words. Like, for example, when the girls when the girls getting ready to go out for her first date, all of her all of her friends gather around her and they tell her the types of things she needs to have in her in her purse and in her pockets, and they call that pocket litter. It's so that the things that you carry, you know, kind of reflect what your cover identity is. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, every girl in America needs to be doing that. They need to be considering their pocket litter. And so, you know, just lots of terms like that that I was able to pick up from some books and things. And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's actually very liberating. I, I imagine it's probably a little bit like what J.K. Rowling goes through when working with the Harry Potter world, is that if something, you know, in reality doesn't quite fit, you know, you have the freedom. It's the, it's the spy world or it's the magic world. You can just make stuff up. And so one of the fun processes of the editing process we were going through and, you know, making sure things were spelled correctly and used in the correct context. And, and everybody kept saying, now, did you make this up or is this real? Now, is this made up or is this real? And so it was kind of interesting to see just, you know, kind of what kind of a blend there ended up being. And I would say it's probably about 50-50 about stuff that's actual things that I've, I've you know, mm-hmm. kind of gleaned from other research or books or shows or whatnot. And and that stuff that I've just you know pulled out of my head. So have you used any of these skills on anyone in your life? Or are you not allowed <laughs> to tell us that? Do you no. have anything you'd like to share with us that might be useful? Not yet. <laughs> I have yet to trail somebody without being detected. Although I I do find myself glancing in my rearview mirror a little more than I used to. I guess. <laughs> so you mentioned the potential movie based on the book. Um, what can you tell us about that? It's very exciting. Um, about a year ago, not long after the book sold, Disney optioned the film rights, and they assigned Deborah Martin Chase, who is a wonderful producer. She's the, the mastermind behind The Princess Diaries and The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. And so I feel very, very lucky to be in such good company. And um, they have just assigned a couple of screenwriters, a screenwriting team who wrote the, the movie that's not released yet, but it's called Daddy's Little Girl. And it's, a big, it's going to be a big um, movie coming out from Disney here in the next year or so. And so they're a very hot kind of commodity on the screenwriting front, which is a very good sign. And the last I heard that they had started working on the script. And um, as soon as we have a script in place, they'll go after directors. And then after they get the director in, in place, they'll start and trying to recruit some actors and actresses. So it's it's very exciting. Um, we don't know at this point what, if anything, is actually going to happen because, you know, these things kind of fall apart all the time. But at this point, everything looks as, as positive and as good as it could possibly look. So I'm very excited. 
Do you have any ideas for who you want to play Cammy in the Disney movie? Oh, well, I actually just posted something about this on my blog oh. at AllieCarter.com because, you know, as soon as they start mentioning actors and actresses, and, and one of the things that they have mentioned is is that they would love to get, you know, kind of an A-list kind of actress um, for the mom role because Cammie's mom is the headmistress of the school, and she's one of my all-time favorite characters. And I, I just really love her. She's the kind of woman that's that's a little silly and very soft, and yet, you know, there's kind of that undercurrent that runs beneath her that, you know, she's seen and done bad things. And I think there's a lot of room and potential for that. And so they they really want a big-name actress for that. And so, you know, automatically I start thinking, oh, my gosh, what if Julia Roberts was in my movie? Or, oh, my gosh, you know, what if Rachel Weisz was in my movie? And I don't know if anybody of that caliber or, or who they will end up getting, but I know in my heart that, the, that these folks, that Deborah Martin Chase, will make no bad calls on that. Because, <laughs> you know, I think every everything she has done, she has done so incredibly well. So I'm just really excited to see what they come up with. You also write for adults. That's and, right, I do. Um, there's a book called Cheating at Solitaire that is out. And um, could you tell us about that series and also the um, differences between maybe writing that sort of book for older audiences and writing for teen girls? Absolutely. Cheating at Solitaire was my first book. It came out back in December from Berkeley. And it's what I guess people would describe as a chiclet or a romantic comedy type of book. It's about a, a, a self-help guru, a woman named Julia James, who's famous for being the woman who can advise anybody and everybody on what it takes to be happily single and kind of what happens when Julia is doing um, press for her new book and the, the paparazzi get pictures of her with an out-of-work actor. And then everybody goes into a tizzy because the most famously single woman in the world has a boyfriend. And so that that is what Cheating at Solitary is. And it's it's got a sequel coming out next fall called Learning to Play Gin. And they were so much fun to write. And I, I, I really enjoyed doing that. And my agent was actually the one who said, you know, the, the aspects that, that you really liked in writing these books are the kind of aspects that are very popular in YA, in young adult fiction. And so she said, why don't you give that a shot? Can you tell us and what so those honestly, that's how that were. happened. And I was re- I'm really glad I did. I, I enjoy working in both genres. Um, what were the aspects that you enjoyed so much that were the same? I think because you can be as fun as you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to necessarily stop and think, well, um, you know, what's what, what's going to be the, the social ramifications of this statement and, and things like that. You know, every now and then a person just needs a good beach read. And, and I really enjoyed working on that. I think that I, I like the characters and I like the, the freedom that you have to do some things. To, to really go out there and, and at times not be afraid to be silly and at times not be not afraid to be sappy and and just really kind of do a, a raw emotional type of book because I think that a lot of times writers get hung up or at least I know I used to get hung up on on trying to get everything on every word of every page you know just absolutely perfect and you lose sight of the big picture. And, and I think that there's some wonderfully well-written things in, in, in women's fiction and in young adult fiction, and that they always focus on the big picture. And, and they, they do it with a really tight word count. I don't know how, how much you want to get into the nuts and bolts of these things. And the, I, I like writing really tight books. I like books that it doesn't take long to, to, to actually get to the heart of the story. And if I have to sit around for 40 pages waiting on something to happen, I'm not going to finish that book. And so that's, that's something that, that I like when I read. And, and 
you know, as a result, I think that's something that I like when I write. Um, what books, I guess what um, YA books do you like to read or what is your preferred genre between chiclet and YA? I've actually gotten to where I, I probably enjoy reading YA more than anything else out there. And I think a part of that is because it, it's just so much more tightly written. You know, we don't we don't waste a lot of time, you know, hearing what the heroine, you know, had for breakfast that morning. You know, we kind of get into the story and we go. Um, I'm absolutely crazy about the Artemis Fowl books, which is another Hyperion title. Another book I'm really excited about reading is um, Blue Bloods by Melissa De La Cruz that came in, in the mail just a day or two ago, and I can't wait to pick it up. Um, I'm, I'm a crazy fan of Meg Cabot. I just adore her. I love E. Lockhart, who wrote The Boyfriend List, which I think was just absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, probably my favorite book that I've read in the last year um, was a book called If Andy Warhol Had a Girlfriend by Allison Pace, which is actually an adult book, but incredibly, incredibly well-written. Another book I absolutely loved, which is, I guess, technically a YA book, is called Amazing Grace by Megan Scholl. And that's one of those books that every time I pick it up, I just get sick because I know I'll never write anything as good as that because it's very, very, very well done. In terms of fans, what are the differences between your interactions with um, teen fans that are reading the Gallagher Girls and your adult fans um, that are reading your Cheating at Solitaire? I don't know if it's representative of, of the quality of the book or the promotional effort behind the books or, or, or what. I don't know why this is happening. But I've probably gotten more email and interaction with, with girls who have read the Gallagher Girls book in the last week than I've gotten in six months from, from women who have read Cheating at Solitaire. And I think probably the big part about that is girls are, are much more willing and interested in, in getting on an author's website and reading about her and sending her an email or going on MySpace or something and sending her a message and, and saying that you like the book. And whereas women are, are uh, older readers are probably, you know, they're more bogged down in, in having other things to do. So it's been very interesting and very fun. I've gotten a lot of really fun emails, and I just absolutely love reading all of them. And I've passed them on to my editor and to my agent, and they love reading them too because it just makes it seem so worthwhile because during the process of writing this book, it was really crazy. You know, we had a very, very short turnaround time. And everything happened, you know, within about six months, had to have the book totally done, ready to go to presses. And so it, it's just, you know, after having all those long nights and, and, and very, very worrisome weekends, it's just great to get an email from somebody saying, you know, I'm just like this character in your book. And can you possibly see if they might cast me in the movie because I'm so much like this person and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's so rewarding to say, yeah, you know, this is this is what we did and this is why it's worth it. So um, what do you hope girls take away from your novel into their everyday lives? And um, is your like idea of what they will take away reflected in the correspondence you have with them? I think so. I think so far I've been very, very pleased. I think the, the one thing I want people walking away, and this is something that I've talked about with my editor and some people, something that I've talked about you know, with, with the people behind the movie and everybody else, is, is we want girls putting down this, walking away from this story, thinking, I want to be a Gallagher girl. You know, I want to be strong and smart and self-sufficient and, you know, dedicated to my friends and loyal and willing to make sacrifices. And it's so it's not necessarily as much about getting the boy or having the right clothes. It's really about how can I make a difference and how can I be a better person. And 
I really think they're doing that. You know, I've had a lot of girls email me saying, I wish there was a school like this because I'd like to go there. And and that, that really means a lot because I think that, that we are at a time when we need women out there really tackling the tough issues. And I think that the girls who grow up reading these books, hopefully they're going to become the kind of women who do that. Can you give us any hints as to what's coming up for Cami and everyone else in the future? Well, of course, the first one, well, I don't want to spoil the first one by, by saying anything about the second mm-hmm. one, but I will say that things are not going to be as they have always been at the Gallagher Academy. There's Ooh. some major shakeups in, in, on the way for the sequel. And the sequel will be out next year about this time. We have a title for it, which I love, which is actually top secret at the moment. We're going to have a contest on my website for people to to guess and and decode the secret, actually, probably sometime this fall. So um, I'm very excited about the sequel. The first draft is due next week, and I can't wait to turn it in and get some (laughs) feedback from my editor because I I think it's really going to kind of ratchet up the tension at the Gallagher Academy quite a bit. And do you think we'll be seeing that on shelves? Um, before next spring or around that time? I think it'll be probably next year about this time. If I had to bet, I would say probably April or May of 2007. Great. Well, yeah, we're looking... Be... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. It'll be out about the same time as the paperback version of, of I'd Tell You I Love You, but then I have to kill you. Well, we're looking forward to that, and it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. For Thank you for having us. me. You're listening to WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. This is Living Writers. Um, we just heard an interview with Allie Carter, and coming up we have some book reviews for you, so stay tuned for that. Then we'll have a little book discussion, and it'll be time for Free Speech Radio News. It's 4.59. Um, first up is Kafka on the Shore, The Earth of the New Sun, and a couple of other books that I personally have read recently and enjoyed. Hopefully you will enjoy them too if you pick them up. Shore explores the familiarly unfamiliar territory that characters in Mirakami's works always seem to inhabit. The spaces between life and death, humanity and inhumanity, reality and fantasy, youth and adulthood. The story features two... Shore explores the familiarly unfamiliar territory that characters in Mirakami's works always seem to inhabit. The spaces between life and death, humanity and inhumanity, reality and fantasy, youth and adulthood. The story features two protagonists, Kafka Tamira, a teenager who runs away from home because of problems with his father, and Nakata, an old man who suffered a mysterious accident in his youth. Kafka and Nakata meander through dreamy minefields of illusion and discovery without ever getting burned, yet neither do they emerge the narrative unscathed. Kafka's story is rather obviously based on Greek tragedy, and the mood and texture of the plot allows for something more than magical realist rehash, but less insight into the human meaning of myth than one might hope. 
On the run from something he does not quite understand, Kafka eventually ends up at the Kimura Memorial Library, where he finds dreamlike tragedy in the midst of stagnant peace with two library employees, Oshima and Misaki. He is eventually given a choice between emptiness and adult understanding, choosing the latter and moving closer to manhood in the process. Nakata begins the story as an old man, a creature of slow instinct and ignorant wisdom. Mirakami illuminates Nakata's story and condition with military interviews regarding the childhood accident that left Nakata almost completely empty. While searching for a neighborhood cat that he suspects has met an unpleasant fate, Nakata too meanders toward change and understanding. In classic Mirakami fashion, the plot moves slowly and circuitously through run-ins with pop culture totems such as murderers named Jack Daniels and godlike pimps molded in the image of Colonel Sanders. However, Kafka on the Short is not as infused with cultural references as some of his other works. It does include the historical reevaluation and bends and breaks in reality that few authors can weave into their narratives as convincingly as Mirakami. The characters, most of whom begin the novel broken, become whole and astonishing in, in some cases, somewhat unfulfilling ways by the end. The individuals populating Mirakami's novel seem either slightly more or less than real, as they painstakingly bury and subsequently uncover their true histories and identities. The novel's real and unreal worlds are not melded together as seamlessly as in Mirakami's other works. Though the paths between reality and metaphor are as ever-present as always, the two worlds stand in stark contrast to each other, meeting only rarely outside the characters themselves. In many ways, this is a novel about the choices between peaceful stasis and painful change that all of us must make in our lives, though perhaps not under such fantastic circumstances as Nakata, Kafka, and the other characters in Kafka on the Shore. Ursula K. Le Guin's book Gifts presents a new world as rich, if not as large and varied, as can be found in her other works for teens and adults. As in The Earthsea Cycle, The Left Hand of Darkness, and other works by Le Guin, the populace, social conventions, and physicality of the world she creates provide thoughtful and compelling commentary on her own world without sacrificing the continuity of the narrative or becoming too didactic or literal. Le Guin's setting is a society where each family line passes on specific talents, some more grim than others, and in many ways they depend upon their gifts for survival. Her two protagonists, a young boy who may or may not live his life blindfolded because he cannot control his power, and a girl who chooses not to utilize her powers the way she is expected to, come of age in ways their parents would never expect. In Gifts, Le Guin explores the nature of power and of choice. She weighs the benefits of childhood ignorance against adult responsibility, choosing some of the former and some of the latter. Though not as action-packed as some of Le Guin's other young adult books, Gifts is hard to put down and stays with you long after it is finished. I hear there's a sequel coming out very soon, so that's something to keep an eye out for as well. of the new sun gene wolf's four novel cycle and its sequel the earth of the new sun are memoirs of a distant future where our sun is growing colder and earth faces a slow death wolf's cycle is equal parts dystopian future adventure story and novel of ideas the narrator severian begins life as an apprentice torturer but must leave his guild when he falls in love with a prisoner fated to die his journeys take him through the wonders of this future earth a mishmash of medieval-like society and setting with the best themes and ideas to be found in science fiction mixed in 
Severian is an imperfect, unreliable, and sometimes cruel narrator, but his attempts at clarity and honesty in telling his story are winning despite the grim nature of his office, making him one of the most compelling protagonists in all of science fiction. You're listening to WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm fabulous. That's great. Um, you just heard a couple of reviews that I did, and I'm, you know, a little bit new at using this board here where we play all this stuff from, so you'll have to forgive me for the sound inequalities you've witnessed. I will improve in the future. So, Sarah, you have a couple of books you'd like to discuss. That I do. And also, if you listeners have anything you'd like to talk about, give us a call. The number is 734-763-3500. If you have any comments on the books that I just reviewed or anything we talk about, or you've just read something great that you want to share with everyone else and recommend something awful that you hope no one ever picks up again, let us know. 763-3500. What's something you've been doing recently, Sarah? My poolside reading on Saturday was Hold On Tight, which is the latest installment in the Insiders series by Jay Minter. The Insiders um, is a click of five extremely wealthy and apparently extremely hot um, high school boys in Manhattan and they've been, you know, BFFs for life and <laughs> they... Can boys be BFFs? Oh, they are deeply BFF. Oh. Um, they love each other. This is maybe the fifth book in the series and I was getting a little bit tired of the insiders but this one was much better than the last. Um, the author, and I believe it actually is just one author, not a you know couple hiding behind a name or a, <laughs> or a marketing hiring. team. Or <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, it, it very well. It usually says created by if it's like a marketing team. Yeah, um, we read these kinds of books. I mean, it's clearly Gossip Girl, but with boys. Oh, it, yeah, it's packaged by Alloy Entertainment. Uh-huh. So it has For a producer. For those of you who maybe aren't familiar with Alloy Entertainment, that's the uh, company that was involved with Kavya Viswanathan, that book that was mainly stolen from some of the actually young adult authors we've interviewed that has been pulled from shelves maybe for a month or so. Yeah, so in this book, um, Jay Minter takes the boys out of the city and also takes them out of the um, kind of like locked in characters she had made them. Um, They were becoming way too predictable and she abandoned some of the like descriptions that would appear in every book for this one. And um, basically there's uh, one of the, one of the friends is a budding artist and he does a lecture at Sarah Lawrence and a lecture at Vassar. (laughs) What? Does sound kind of like Gossip Girl. Yeah. And uh, amazing chances. Yeah. The boys take a couple road trips and um, one of them is, you know, looking for depth and looking for (laughs) We have a call. So I'm going to let you take it now, Sarah, while I get this done. Um, Yeah. This is awkward. (laughs) <laughs> Just so you all know. But, um, yes, Arno, you know, explores his deeper side, is looking for love, thinks he falls in love with, like, three girls, and then, uh, you know, gets used for sex by the girl he thinks he loves. 
Um, let's see. Poolside reading on Monday was The Girl I Wanted to Be, which is a new book from Sarah Grace McCandless, who wrote a book called Gross Point Girl. And I have to read. Hopefully we will interview her later on in the summer. Um, if I may interject quickly, uh, Sarah, I just had a caller and they were asking what BFF meant. Oh. Since, you know, some people maybe aren't teenagers or teen enthusiasts, BFF means best friends forever. It's something used by mainly girls at camp and Sarah Stedman. I love BFF. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry to ruin your train of thought. So this book, The Girl I Wanted to Be by Sarah Grace McCandless, um, is about a girl from a large fam- a kind of large family, um, lots of cousins and aunts and uncles living nearby. Um, it's in, I think, southeastern Michigan. They spend some time at a cottage on the west side of the state. Um, and this girl is entering high school. It's about her freshman year in high school. And she has a cousin who she looks up to who is a senior. And she also has an aunt who she looks up to very much who is her mother's only sister and is um, in her mid-20s, maybe. And the narrator, her name is Presley, um, she pretty much worships her aunt. And basically some uh, shocking things happen (laughs) that obviously I picked up on in the first few pages. (laughs) And it took, you know at least like eight chapters for it to be revealed. But um thought it was well done, especially, you know, considering the audience it's actually being written for. And yeah. If you'd like to join the conversation, the number is seven six three three five zero zero. We are capable of talking about non young adult novel books. Um, but we just don't like to do it very much. But you know, if you want to let people know about a book you've read or discuss something put out a question for other callers, let us know. 763-3500. Now, something that we both read recently is Notorious. Oh, you read Notorious? <laughs> oh, yeah, I read that too. Did you borrow it from me? Yes, I did. Oh. This is the second um, novel in the It Girl series, which is a horrible series. That oh. It is horrible. That well, is it's, a a, spin-off. it's a Gossip Girl spinoff. It's a spinoff of Gossip Girl, which if you're not familiar with that, there was an article by Naomi Wolf about how horrible Gossip Girl is for our children. Um, about a month ago in the New York Times. Also, maybe you read my term paper about it. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to read Sarah's term paper, we can send that to you. It's fabulous. Um, Yeah, so this book is really bad, but also really good. (laughs) Don't buy it. Borrow it from your friends. Um, You know, there's lots of girls. They're catty. They steal each other's boyfriends. They live in this exclusive boarding school. That's all you need to know. Pretty much, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. I mean, if you're a parent and your, your child is maybe under the age of what, you probably don't want them to read it, Sarah. How old do you think you have to be? 12? 12. Definitely not. 12 is a good age. 12 right? is good. Yeah, I think so. Or, you know, if you're overprotective, 18. <laughs> um, let's see. Something I recently read was Odd Magic by Patricia A. McKillop. She is a fantasy author. She puts out almost a book a year, kind of like a young adult author. This isn't young adult fiction at all. Um, I really love this author. She's the author of the Riddle Master Trilogy, amongst other novels, if you are familiar with those. Um, It's very calming. I think it's a great thing to read maybe outside on the beach, not necessarily because it's a simple beach read, but because it kind of puts you into this, you know, floating, dreamy state, and you end up calmer than you began if you read it in one sitting, as I did. Um, It features sort of an agrarian theme of a gardener with possible magical powers going to a school for wizardry um, and lots of other sort of 
subplots. It's not like Harry Potter at all. It's very different, Sarah. Don't laugh at me. I love Harry Potter. It's adult book. Well, yeah. There's lots of political intrigue, things like that. Uh, the twists and turns you can expect. I mean, very I heard you book. say wizard. I did say wizard. <laughs> Perhaps I should have said sorcerer. Oh no. <laughs> Sarah doesn't was there a column of, of fire on the cover? There was not a column of fire. Um, I only read fantasy novels that do not feature these things. Half human, half animals on the cover. Pillars of fire on the cover. Swords of ice on the cover. What about I mystical mirrors? Mystical mirrors, probably not. Okay. Depends on, you know, how mystical the mirror is. <laughs> um, what else have you got for us? Well, I read Go Ask Alice the other night. It's a classic. And this book came out in, what, 1971. And was, it, it for a long time, believed to be an actual diary that was by some anonymous girl. Um, and then it, as it turned out, it was just, I guess, written by someone, but, um, it like follows a couple years in the life of this, uh, teenage girl who becomes involved with drugs and runs away from home and comes back home and starts doing drugs again and hides in a closet i remember that part somehow gets stuck in a closet uh, she gets locked in the closet when she's on a bad trip when the girls who she used to do drugs with are not her friends uh drug the food she's eating and she's babysitting and mental hospital and blah 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 yeah um i had nightmares after finishing reading this book i think that's maybe the point yeah it's like the ultimate say no to drugs book yeah but very good it is it is a real diary is it not is that true i mean i just spoke about how it's not true. i thought it was i heard that it was revealed that it was in fact not i thought it was like this they found her diary and then edited it in this way that made it not real anymore but you know either way it's it's you know maybe more affecting if you think it's real you're looking it up yeah urban legends reference pages Uh, okay i'm a liar yeah it says let's see what does it say? Drugs were on the minds of everyone in the late 1960s and early 1970s, even those who weren't partaking of illegal substances or harboring plans to ever do so. Paternalistic concern about the burgeoning drug culture led to the, led to the youth of that day being heavily indoctrinated with anti-drug propaganda at almost every turn, particularly in school where they were subjected to health classes which were little more than don't-get-high lectures. Even the selection of recreational reading materials intended for them was booby-trapped with literary offerings purporting to be true-life stories of real kids, yet which were no more than this-is-what-could-happen-to-you sermonizings. Mm -hmm. The most famous was Go Ask Alice. Okay. And uh, let's see. This actually reminds me a lot of some of the commercials that are playing in, not not in Michigan right now, but I guess in North Dakota um, at least, about meth. Have you heard about those, Sarah? No. Um, they There are lots of commercials that are actually really scary. I've seen a couple of them um, featuring what will happen to you if you do methamphetamines. Not that I'm saying that you should or that it's a lie that these things will happen. Involve Whoa. people picking at themselves, all whole sorts of horrible stuff. Oh, I've seen yeah. ones where someone's plucking their eyebrows. They pluck their eyebrows out until they bleed. They yeah. pick at their nails, which is things that do happen if you do meth. I don't yeah. know from personal The eyebrows experience. one, I was watching TV and this boy was like, is that what you guys do? do and then when it became this bloody mess he was just like oh "Oh, never mind this isn't just a girl thing this is a drug thing yeah but yeah apparently ghost alice was written by 
Beatrice Sparks, who has written many books about teens who saw their lives ruined by their bad choices, mm. like Girl Dying of AIDS, A Pregnant Teenager, oh. <laughs> a Teen Girl is Sexually Taken Advantage of by a Teacher, Another <laughs> another Diary of a Teen Boy Who Turns to Satan Worship and Drug Use. Whoa. Those two um, things go hand in hand. A runaway who has a life on the streets and an eating disorder book. Kim Empty Inside. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, all these sorts of scare tactic books just sort of backfire in my mind. Because I, I mean, go ask Alice. I read that when I was a teenager and it just seems so over the top. Like that will never happen to me. Mm. That it just didn't scare me. Okay, now I'm. <laughs> it seems that everyone involved with the book Go Ask Alice is kind of hilarious. Like, Linda Glovach, who was one of the preparers of Go Ask Alice, wrote a book called Beauty Queen about a girl who flees her alcoholic mother, becomes a stripper, and dies of heroin addiction. <laughs> Maybe we should read a passage from Go Ask Alice, a scary one. Do you want to do that? Oh. Um, you don't have to if you don't want to. I mean, I have to find one. Okay. And I don't know exactly... Well, we're going to come back with an excerpt from Go Ask Alice if you're wondering what you're talking about. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to play a couple of pre-recorded reviews I did of books that are not about drugs or bad things happening to people, really, except for this one, which is about a murder mystery. Meg Cabot novels seem to multiply like rabbits, with new series spawning what seems like almost every month. In Size 12 is Not Fat, the first installment of a new detective series by the author, Ex-pop star Heather Wells rents an apartment from a private eye, takes a job as an assistant drum director at a New York college, and starts doing a little amateur sleuthing of her own. Heather is just barely managing to get by both financially and personally at the beginning of the novel. She has a pitiful salary, demanding job, boy band X, and unwanted notoriety stemming from her past teen pop glory. In the grand tradition of Cabot heroines, Heather Wells is smart, spunky, and endearingly hapless treating her anxiety with ham sandwiches, fudge bars, and a healthy dose of self-analysis as she tries to navigate life as a has-been. Planning on attending college while working in the dorms, Heather discovers what may be her true calling when a girl in the dorm dies under mysterious circumstances and she decides to investigate. Cabot was a dorm director before becoming a successful novelist, and the characterization of dorm life is in many ways spot-on in this entertaining read. The usual mystery novel conventions are put to use in a chiclet context to satisfying effect, and the subplot involving Wells' ex and his new girlfriend is fresh and fun, mostly due to Cabot's witty characterizations. Cabot's genius is mainly in her ability not to let herself or her protagonist take themselves too seriously. If you're capable of doing the same, Size 12 is Not Fat is a great book to read on the beach, in the plane, or surreptitiously under your desk when your boss isn't looking. Follow the Blue by Bridget Lowry is the usual teen girl romantic fair with an Australian twist. The slang and some aspects of the storyline make this slightly more fresh and fun than the average teen romance, but the characters fall flat in many ways, seeming too shallow, stupid, or careless to be truly interesting to the reader. Similarly, the plot lacks a climax and a satisfying resolution. The book also includes a number of mixed metaphors and unpleasant similes that, if anything, take away from the narrative. I finished the book trying to figure out what exactly, if anything, had occurred and how the characters had changed. I came up with next to nothing. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. That's some sort of computer sound. I'm sorry I'm doing such a bad job today. And that was actually the Free Speech Radio News theme. Was it? I yes. wonder how that happened. I Did you know. download it? On I downloaded other? it in the other room. Oh, maybe that happened over there. I hope no one's in there making it play. 
<laughs> I turned it off anyway. <clears throat> so an <laughs> excerpt now from Go Ask Alice. I found out how I got the acid. Dad says that someone put it on the chocolate-covered peanuts, and I guess that's right because I remember eating the peanuts after, after I'd washed the baby. At the time, I thought Mr. Larson had left me a surprise, but now that I think about it, I don't remember why I thought Mr. Larson had been there and gone without saying anything. That part is blank. Actually, I'm amazed that I remember anything, but I guess no matter what kind of damage I pile on myself, my mind keeps working. The doctor says that's normal because it really takes a lot to knock your brains loose permanently. I hope that's right because I feel like I've taken a lot already. Anyway, I remember that the candy reminded me of Gramps because he was always eating chocolate peanut clusters, and I remember starting to get dizzy and sick to my stomach. I guess I tried to call Mom to ask her to come over and get me and the baby when I realized that someone somehow had tripped me. It's all very unclear because when I try to think back, it's like I'm looking through fuzzy colored lights, but I do remember trying to dial home and taking eternities to get each number to the end. I think the line was busy, and I don't really remember what happened next, except that I was screaming and Gramps was there to help me, but his body was dripping with blazing multicolored worms and maggots, which fell on the floor behind him. He tried to pick me up, but only the skeleton remained of his hands and arms. The rest had been picked clean by wriggling, writhing, slithering, busily eating worms, which seethed onto his every part. They were eating, and they wouldn't stop. His two eye sockets were teeming with white, soft-bodied, creeping animals, which were burrowing in and out of his flesh, and which were phosphorescent and swirled into one another. The worms and parasites started creeping and crawling and running toward the baby's room, and I tried to stomp on them and beat them to death with my hands, but they multiplied faster than I could kill them. And they began crawling on my own hands and arms and face and body. They were in my nose and my mouth and my throat, choking me, strangling me. Tapeworms, larvae, grubs, disintegrating my flesh, crawling on me, consuming me. Whoa. That's pretty scary, huh? Definitely scary. Do you think that this, I mean, I haven't read this in a long time. Did you feel like it was a good book just to read? Was it entertaining to you? Or did you, do you think of it more as like a study in the sort of propaganda, drug propaganda that they feed people? Um, I was into reading it. I, I read it all in pretty much one evening. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, for those of you who just started listening, we're talking and reading from Go Ask Alice. Um, and we're having a discussion of books that we've recently read. Um, to fill in time after our Allie Carter interview, it's about 524, so we've got just a few minutes left. If you'd like to give us a call at 763-3500 um, to let other people know about a book you've read that you loved or hated. And interestingly enough, in Go Ask Alice, the 1973 made-for-TV film version Ooh. of the book, William Shatner starred as the doomed girl's father. Oh. Yes. Do you have any more tidbits about Go Ask Alice? No. No? I don't think so. It's interesting all these books that pretend to be written by people they're not written by. Yeah. So many of the young adult series that are out right now are not written by specific authors or, you know, much like Nancy Drew, sort of ghostwritten, planned by some corporate entity and ghostwritten. And then I guess it's been going on for quite some time just seems like so mean because you think oh there's this woman writing these books that i like to read and then it's you know it's not quite as mean as there's this girl who died on an acid trip <laughs> i mean this is true um i don't like scare tactics i don't necessarily you know think that everyone should be allowed to do all drugs but i definitely am not into scare tactics like go ask alice yeah um i mean i wish it was real <laughs> that's really mean also i know <laughs> 
So one book that I recently read that I think I talked to you about before, Sarah, is The Next Big Thing by Johanna Edwards. Do you remember? No. It's kind of Jennifer Weiner-esque. She's the author of Good and Bad and um, Shoes. What's that book called? In Her Shoes, um, which was made into a movie pretty recently. And I think she has a new one that's called Good Night Nobody. Yeah. And also Little Earthquakes is by Jennifer Wieners. But that's not the same author as this. This book is definitely chiclet. Um, it is. It features a girl named Kat who is size 20 or something like that um, and signs up to be on a reality show for weight loss. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so it sort of um, analyzes the dynamics of weight loss and of reality TV together. It's mainly interesting to me. I, I mainly liked it because the... Um, protagonist is you know you you are hearing things from her side um and her voice so you sort of begin to identify with her but then it turns out um in the editing of the show she's the one that comes out as the bad guy on the reality show so you you know she johanna edwards pulls you in and gets you to sympathize with this character and then when you hear about what people are saying in newspapers and such outside the reality world, you find out that she's the bad one. So it's very interesting to get that side of the story just because I'm not that big of a fan of reality TV, but for instance, Project Runway, which I know Sarah's also a fan of, there's always this, you know, one person that just ruins everything for everyone and lies and you, you know, just kind of go along with it and wonder. Was there in season two? Not really in season two, hmm. but, but I, I guess I didn't Wendy mean Pepper. just in that one, but in all reality shows or in Survivor, there's like the bad ones. But you never know what people are doing off the camera, so that was interesting. One reason I did not like it was that they really didn't at all, you know, it was just like losing weight is good. Uh-huh. There was some, like, you know, thoughts about, like, I should be accepted for who I am, but, you know, it mainly involved, like, making sure that people did that by becoming thin. Oh. Um, but not too thin, because then you're a traitor. So Got it. that into that side of the story. I think that, you know, if you're going to read a book like that, maybe Jennifer Wieners is the better way to go. Probably, right? Yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to talk about, Sarah? we got about three minutes, two minutes left. Um, you're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN 88.3 FM in Arbor. We're doing a short book discussion. We listened to an interview with Allie Carter. And coming up next week is probably an interview with Sarah Gruen, author of Water for Elephants. Possibly some other wonderful interview that we'll have for you. And probably no book discussion. Probably no book discussion. <laughs> um, though I will tell you that the next book I'm going to read is Uglies by Scott Westerfeld, which is yeah, the first good. in a trilogy. And um, it's about this girl named Tally who's about to turn 16. And where she lives, um, when you turn 16, you get an operation that turns you from a repellent ugly into a stunningly attractive pretty. And how her best friend doesn't want to become a pretty and how uh, there's a a chase and a decision to be made. Sounds very much like the giver to me. So that's about all the time we have for living writers. It's almost time to turn it over for free speech radio news. So stay tuned for that. First up, we'll have a short message. Tune in next week to hear a full full hour of interview. Thank you for listening. This is Free Speech Radio News. It's Wednesday, May 31, 2006. From the studios of KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. 
On today's newscast, we'll take a look at how far the UN has come in its goals to counter the spread of HIV/AIDS. The governor of Florida signs a policy into law barring academic research in Sudan, North Korea, Iran, Syria, and Cuba. And we'll hear from Chile, where over half a million high school students force the government to face their demands. We'll bring you these stories and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News headlines. Iraq's Prime Minister Nouri Kamal al-Maliki has declared a state of emergency in Basra, threatening to use an iron fist to restore security there. Meanwhile, President George W. Bush commented on allegations of a massacre of Iraqi civilians by U.S. Marines in Haditha for the first time today. When asked about the scandal during a photo op with the visiting president of Rwanda, Bush said, quote, "I'm mindful that there's a thorough investigation going on. If in fact laws were broken, there will be punishment." U.S. Marines are accused of murdering some 24 unarmed Iraqi civilians and then covering up the crime. Thousands of patients in India heave a sigh of relief today as doctors and medical students withdraw their strike following a Supreme Court directive. Bino Alex has more. Striking doctors and medical students call off their strike this afternoon in accordance with a court order. They were protesting for nearly three weeks against a federal government plan to reserve half of state-funded professional college places for lower caste students. But the court said the strike was causing great inconvenience for a large number of patients and ordered the doctors to return to work. The court also asked the government to justify the quota plan within eight weeks and explain how it would be implemented, reserving seats for lower caste who form a majority of Indian population has been a political tool used by various parties for electoral gains. The striking doctors argue that 50 years of programs to bring up the lower caste from the bottom of India's caste hierarchy have not been successful. From Ahmedabad in India, I'm Binu Alex for Free Speech Radio News. There have been new riots in Paris's 